Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Disagreements, interpersonal conflict, or fights evoke negative feelings for all of us. And we have been told to do our best not to rock the boat and minimize those fights. But for any relationship to survive, it's vital to manage, cultivate, and even nourish those moments of conflict. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Z, and I am back with another episode of the Plain It Safe podcast. Let's face it, being in a conversation with someone that thinks differently than us is never easy. In this episode, I continue my conversation with Todd Kashdan. He shares actionable tips to manage those disagreements in different contexts. Todd Kashdan is a world expert on the psychology of well-being, psychological strengths, mental agility, and social relationships. His research has been featured in hundreds of media outlets, including multiple articles in the Harvard Business Review, New York Times, and Forbes. In 2010, Todd received the Distinguished Faculty Member of the Year Award at George Mason University. And in 2013, he received the Distinguished Early Career Researcher Award by the American Psychological Association. Todd is the author of Curious, The Upside of Your Dark Side, and Designing Positive Psychology. His latest book is The Art of Insubordination. This is part two of my conversation with Todd. I truly hope that you find this episode helpful and that you put into action the skills that Todd shares about how to handle disagreements, how you can check your own beliefs, or how you can avoid group thinking. On another note, I want to invite you to participate in a series of monthly workshops I am hosting the first Wednesday of every month from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific time. I will be teaching you skills to handle all types of ineffective planet safe moves. I will be covering topics like how to stop doing things flawlessly all the time, how to find your rhythm to get things done without losing yourself, how to tackle procrastination and avoidant behaviors, how to navigate big fear-based emotions in the moment, how to figure out what matters in the midst of a difficult situation, how to deal with worry, rumination, and obsessions, how to stop second-guessing yourself and start making values-based choices. These series are part of my work on acceptance and commitment therapy, 
apply for anxiety-based struggles and ineffective playing it safe modes. If you have listened to this podcast, you have heard me saying over and over that we all play it safe in one way or another. And I absolutely believe that. We all rely on thinking strategies to manage our fears, worries, and anxieties. In each webinar, I will be sharing with you evidence-based and compassionate skills to handle those unworkable playing it safe moves. So you don't get trapped in the comfort and the coziness of engaging in those familiar safety behaviors. To register, you need to go to the website www.thisisdrz.com and from the menu, select the option online courses so you can enroll there. You can also go to the website courses.thisisdrz.com that is C-O-U-R-S-E-S dot this is drz.com and register there. I truly hope to see you all the first Wednesday of every month from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific time. Let's jump onto the conversation with Todd Kashdan, part two. I wish you a great week. Bye-bye. You know, I think a lot about something's happened society-wise where parent-teacher associations have become these real venomous areas when they normally were this is a place for parents to talk about how hard it is to parent and it's for teachers and administrators to talk about it's really hard to raise an entire building full of these little minds and these little bodies and they're you know there's they're still immature and they're not able to solve problems on their own it was always a place of community and now they're like these civil wars and one thing I regularly see by watching videotapes or going to of other of other schools or going to my own parent teacher associations in my kids' schools is that no one ever begins with a sufficient opening for why they're interested in this topic and why they care so much about the children. Mm-hmm. That always comes at the end of like, I'm saying this because I care about the kids. Well, now it's almost like a <laughs> it's like this, this, this defensive posturing. But if you start right. off first, which is that, you know, is that, um, is that I've dedicated myself 30 years to being a teacher. Now I'm a parent. And one thing that's bothered me society-wise is X, Y, and Z. And mm-hmm. I figure, hey, an ounce of prevention is a pound of intervention. And so I want to see what can we do to actually train our kids to be better citizens in the world. You don't hear that opening. And no, that, that's right. that, that opening versus saying what you despise and who you despise, again, brings defensiveness down, brings curiosity up. You know, in some way, when you are sharing that, I was thinking about the classic assertiveness training, but I think you're taking things one step farther. So I think it creates really a very different context to have a conversation and to have a courageous, challenging conversation as well. Yeah, the way I view it is, and in the simplest terms, is we're talking about framing, setting up the architectural framework before you insert things into the household or the building that you're creating. And I think about this on social media. I, and I mean, you can, you know, I have a, a digital footprint. You can see that I do this all the time. So every day there is someone that everybody hates. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a politician. Yeah. Um, it's an athlete that's been, been accused of sexual assault. It's a it's a professor that engaged in plagiarism. You will regularly find digital footprint where I say, listen, I'm a due process guy. I'm a behavioral evidence guy. So as everyone else is attacking this 
man, woman, or anyone. Um, I need to, I can't just trust that somebody reported it. What mm-hmm. is the best, the best, clearest evidence for and against the claims that are being suggested? Because the way that I view one of the biggest problems in society, it's the speed to intolerance. Ah. It's so, it's so, we're so quick. I mean, you know, if we, if, when we end this podcast interview, you and I will probably talk for a little bit afterwards and you might tell me, or I might tell you about someone that I, that I dislike. And mm-hmm. the other person is so, because we spent so much time now together, having this intimate conversation is just, there's a tendency to trust, trust the other person as a credible reporter of what that person did. And we rarely stop to say ourselves, okay, besides the relationship I have with Patricia, besides how much I trust you because I've read your work, as you discuss this other person, I have to say, listen, it sounds like it's really upsetting to you. I don't know much about this person and situation. So I'm not going to throw my hat in the ring as a thumbs up or a thumbs down yet. But mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry that it's bothering you right now. And that takes that it doesn't take that much courage, but it does take the uncomfortable awkwardness of you saying, I don't agree with you right now. I don't disagree with you. I'm just taking a deliberate pause. Thank you for sharing that because that's what there is a lot to say about flexibility, psychological flexibility. Um, Am I willing to take a pause in the service of my values? Am I willing to take a pause in the service of finding the truth without holding quickly into this story that this person is wrong or this person has committed a crime? Now, that's really hard. In some relationships, that's really hard. Any other variables you have found in your work to address this phenomenon of the speed of intolerance so we can hold people's opinions lively in the service of learning more and finding the multiple layers of a complex phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I think you, I think Patricia, you just described it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to have different terms to describe exactly what you said, where it's really important to separate task oriented problem solving from relationship oriented problem solving. Mm -hmm. So we will, just like I was suggesting that it's, well, it's not suggestion. It's based on the science of persuasion as a minority is it's more important that you have to, you have to detail what has objective evidence and what's a subjective opinion. Mm-hmm. And the same way, when you're a minority, what, uh, especially when you're trying to persuade people, it's really important to clarify of, I value your relationship, tons of respect for you, Patricia, you've seen articles I've written, I've cited your work, love how you think. Um, in terms of this task of determining whether this person is, is innocent or guilty, um, separating that a little bit, I am totally everything you feel I have nothing but compassion for want to give you a hug want to hear everything that's on your mind I just can't form an opinion yet because I only have access to what you told me so Mm -hmm. here again it's there's a you're offering meta commentary of saying I am separating this is this is not about me trusting you it's about I'm separating out the task from that and it's just like good writing like good writing and good filmmaking and good storytelling involves meta comments where people are talking about, I just, ha- I just had a, an exercise in my science well-being class mm-hmm. and people had to give, they had to interview somebody they never met before about what is their definition of meaning and purpose in life. Wow. And 
they had a right, they had a right. And so they had to interview three people. One of them had to be on the surface, their diametrical opposite. And it was meant to kind of activate stereotypes. So, (laughs) so for me, it might be a quiet, a quiet woman who, um, you know, might be wearing a burqa and who's, you know, you know, you know, reading like a a holy scriptures and sitting by herself, (laughs) that might be on the surface, my diametrical opposite that goes there. Mm -hmm. And they write, and they write about this experience. And I told them what makes a good paper or a good story is you to write, what, what were you thinking and feeling going in? What did you expect them to say about meaning and purpose in life, this diametrical opposite of yours? And then what did you learn and how accurate or inaccurate were you? And then how did you feel about that? It's the, the meta comments are what makes it. So whether she has the same view of me as purpose in life mm-hmm. isn't as interesting as, was it disconcerting to me? Was it challenging to me? Did it make me reframe my own thoughts of purpose in life? Did I think that I've been too insular, hanging out with too many people that think like me and have similar personalities to me? That's what makes it interesting. And knowing that, Part of persuasion is offering your meta meta emotions and your meta thoughts about what's happening. Like, listen, you know, Patricia, like as I'm talking to you about whether to believe you, whether this guy was actually like a really evil person, Mm -hmm. um, I just, I need you to know is that I'm sort of torn because I want to go with you with everything you say, because I just love being around you and you know, I care about you. And just be, but because I'm such a big due process guy, um, I'm just going to hold out for a little bit. Separate those two relationships and tasks when you're dealing with conflicts. And when you can say it and really clarify it, you're going to do a good job of actually um, sustaining a relationship in a healthy way, even if you're not going with the tides. That's really powerful, Todd. Thank you for sharing. I didn't think much in terms of task orientation and relationship orientation, but it does make sense to create a context in which we can hold some of our thoughts lively, whatever they are. Um, You and I practice acceptance and commitment therapy. How do you see some of the processes of acceptance and commitment therapy related to persuasion and healthy dissentment? Yeah, I mean, you've been you've been littering this conversation with a term, which is great. <laughs> so when you mentioned the values, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and I'm purposely sticking with the same same examples because it makes it for an ease. So ease, by the way, is one of the ways of persuasion is ease of process. If I use different examples over the course of an hour, I've now made it more difficult to put all the things together and use for for people to use in their own lives. That's so true. what does it mean when I say I'm a due process guy? It means that. I'm really big about um, independence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really big about. I'm really big about kind of in terms of the look searching for evidence behind my thoughts. I'm looking at critical thinking. These are core values that it autonomy, autonomy, support, critical thinking, and independent thought. These are my core values. So this is where ACT comes in there. Mm-hmm. So those are the core values, and then you have this mid level term where I can describe it in terms of in terms of the potential guilt or innocence of someone or and this also goes for just gossip of do i think this actually happened this is actually a bad or a good thing that someone did the mid-process variable is what's the best evidence for it what's the best evidence against it and then who is who is who is leading the leading the fervor 
for saying this is a healthy thing or unhealthy thing that this person did to happen there, because I want to see if there are biases that have entered into the algorithm that happened there. But the underpinnings of that are being very clear about my values. And then those guide these mid-level terms in terms of how I orient myself as I'm collecting information about third parties. So that's one of the ways. And another way, which you said, which, you know, again, you littered before with saying holding your thoughts loosely, this cognitive diffusion element is such an important aspect of dissenting. Because if you're in a group and they are, ex- let's, let's take the provocative example of a diversity initiative in an organization. Sure. And you are completely for diversity, but you might not be for the tactics and strategies that are being used. You might think mm-hmm. that there's, little problematic in terms of it seems as if we are limiting the number of variables of diversity you know one element of diversity that nobody ever thinks about is people that have a preference for high energy states and experiences versus Mm -hmm. low energy states and experiences Mm -hmm. so i'm the type of person that likes joyous energetic like really like, uh, you know, like you have no spontaneity. You don't know what's coming. A lot of other people like tranquil, serene, calm environments. Yeah. And so this is a form of cognitive diversity is that mm-hmm. in an organizational setting, if every group meeting is a free for all for nobody raises their hand, whoever speak, you can speak out of turn. So the loudest person, the most assertive person, um, the tallest person, the person with the, the, the deepest voice, they're going to be heard more than people that are kind of quiet and mousy with their voices, which is, which is not their right. fault in terms of their voices. In that environment, you are basically showing a level of discrimination against people that are lower in assertiveness, tend to be more introverted, tend to be more reserved, tend to prefer low energy environments. But mm-hmm. We don't talk about that. So often when I'm in conversations, I like to kind of bring up these kind of examples of saying, if we're thinking about diversity, let's think about it in a much more sophisticated manner, specific to the exact context. In a group mm-hmm. conversation, which forms of diversity are, is there discrimination? And where is there a behavioral trail that it's true as opposed to we're chasing a solution in search of a problem? Because maybe they'll turn back to me and say, actually, you know what? We are having people um, raise their hand in advance. And actually, you missed the email that I sent where I said, hey, I want people to share what questions they have ahead of time, and I'm going to call on you before the meeting starts. Todd, you might not have read the email. That was exactly designed to make sure that we don't show discrimination against the more quiet, reserved, introverted people that happen there. And so in this case, I missed that there actually there's actually less of a problem than there actually mm-hmm. is. So what, so one, one of the techniques that's in there is the cognitive diffusion is when you are challenging and saying there's a problem in an organization or a group, and there might not be, or they might not see it the same way, you're going to be socially persecuted, most likely a little bit. And you're, because you're going to raise anxiety and strain in other people, when people experience a rise in cortisol and a rise in stress, um, they tend to get upset and it tends to be like, outwardly towards whoever is the person or thing that caused them to be upset and anxious. And so as you feel that friction, that social tension that you created there, you have to have some ability when you have the thoughts of, I shouldn't have said something. What's Mm -hmm. wrong? 
why can't I just be quiet like everyone else? Why can't, why can't someone else be the person that actually points out the problems? Why does it always have to be me? These thoughts will only make your well-being detracted and there's no necessary reason for them. But as you said, if you can hold your thoughts loosely and realize these are just thoughts, mm-hmm. they are perfectly normal to be generated by a stressful, a stressful situation. And mm-hmm. I can recognize they are not me and they don't reflect my personality and they don't reflect my identity. They reflect what I'm experiencing emotionally and mentally in the moment and just see them as that and not as an indication that you shouldn't have said something or should have said something. You can make that, you can make that deduction later as you kind of reflect back on the situation, but now you need to be in the present moment because an issue has been risen, Mm -hmm. something's happening and you want all of your mental resources available so that you can have the most productive conflict possible And that's going to require you to diffuse a little bit from your, you know, from these thoughts that are trying to pull you back internally and not paying attention to what's happening in the environment. I'm curious about this. And this is based on some of the emails you and I exchanged about process-based therapy. Um, If I'm holding these thoughts lightly, the thoughts that says, Patricia, why are you asking that question? Just let it go, Patricia. So that's one type of thought. But what about when my mind quickly fuses with the thoughts of the gurus and the experts and the leaders? And because experts say so, it must be the truth. Um, I think your book is really all about unpacking complex situations and going beyond this quick frame, this quick solution or this quick thought about holding things as the truth. But that requires that I diffuse myself a little bit from the experts say. This guru said this, or because this leader said that's the truth. Do you think the fusion is different in regard to that, to those particular facts or not? How do you see it? Yeah, um, you know, I learned this from Kelly Wilson um, from a presentation in Australia several years ago, is the fusion with the positive thoughts and the self-confident thoughts are exactly the same as for negative thoughts. It just has different balance. It just Mm -hmm. feels good. Um, So you know, with the exact example you gave, I'm a strong proponent. If you're no longer a kid, um, you should really try to reduce the number of people that you define as your heroes, your icons. Mm -hmm. Like um, you can respect people, you can admire Mm -hmm. people, but as you start to use more extreme language and say that these are your heroes and these are the people that like, uh, you know, you look that like are, you know, the, the, the iconic people that kind of led you to where you are. You, you lose the ability to challenge um, and question and be skeptical of what they say. I mean, we're all these like, we're all these really, you know, frail, imperfect human beings. And so if I look, if I look at a Stephen Hayes or a David Barlow or mm-hmm. a David Buss or an Elizabeth Loftus or any of these like great scientists, and I say like, you know, you know, they're the heroes, they're the ones that got me into the field. The more that you start to identify your path, your passions, and your values with them, then it becomes challenging them is like challenging yourself. And that's a hard thing to do. And so I would encourage people to use this diffusion strategy to make sure that um, you don't defend Brene Brown to the death. And you can actually say is that, you know what? I do have some questions about her work and I do question whether there's evidence behind what she's saying, even though I know she's one of the most popular, you know, intellectual characters in society right now. 
the more popular someone gets, an Adam Grant, a Neil deGrasse Tyson, the mm -hmm. more you should be actually, the more you should diffuse from them because their message travels so quickly and so widely that when they make errors, which is going to happen, sure. somebody has to be able to catch them and make sure that the correction is very close in proximity to when they reveal that information. And those iconic people themselves mm -hmm. should be very thankful that these dissenters are out there searching or these editors are searching there for the mistakes errors, so that actually they can make the course correction and they have enough power and status where they can spend social capital on it, where maybe, you know, you and I, or someone that's a student or someone that's 19 or someone mm -hmm. that's actually, you know, has a black first generation college student who has a platform of a hundred people online. When they say something, they don't have, unfortunately, the social capital to make errors as some of these more, these larger than life figures actually do. So it is, again, it's, the greatest protection against conformity mistakes are these dissenters. And yet we treat them as if they are extremely annoying gnats, mosquitoes, and horse flies. That's right. Just get in the way of us having fun and, and screwing around with ideas and innovations. That's true. That's true. I think that we want people to agree and think the same in some way. And if I can do a follow-up question, speaking about Adam Grant, I think it was in the book Originals when he is examining decision-making. One of the case studies that he presented was a person who was trying to make a decision, but I think he made a wrong decision by only asking the experts instead of trying to solve something by asking people that think outside the box. I hope I'm recalling correctly the case study, but I'm curious, what is your take on that? So I remember when I was applying for jobs after grad school and I had mm -hmm. an interview with the first woman to get tenure at Harvard University, Ellen Langer. Wow. And we were having a conversation about mindfulness and she was talking about how she wasn't a big fan of, of uh, a Buddhist approach or even, you know, the John Kabat-Zen approach to mm -hmm. mindfulness where she was really interested in the cognitive element of mindfulness is being paying attention to the novelty of how this situation is unlike any other situation. And the way that she, the way that she described this was you should, you should be paying attention to what are the elements of the situation you're interested in and what is the divergence from whoever are the so-called experts who are offering ideas about that situation. And she said, you should always be thinking about who is the human being responsible for creating the thing that you're looking at, questioning, challenging, or supporting. And so it's just like if I walked through my neighborhood and I saw that not in front of a house, but just in mm -hmm. front of an empty lot, there was a sign that said, um, don't walk on the grass. And so she would say, it's like, you should be thinking to yourself, well, who put the sign up that says mm -hmm. don't walk on the grass? Not so much the rule. But first start with the person because that person is, we don't, we want to know what their motivation was in the first place. It might be enacted in law, but the law might be because that person had a lot of power, knew mm -hmm. all the people on the board, spent a lot of money. And like, we don't know all that backdrop. So we don't need all that backdrop. But I just want to know who that person is and why did they put it up there in the first place? And even if there is a law, 
not all laws in the books are good laws. Like there are still, they're still in the state of Virginia where I live right now, there are anti-sodomy laws and all those are there. They're still in the books. All those layers, all those laws are there in the state of Virginia because they're anti-gay laws because it went against the religious doctrines of the time. And then what Senator or congressperson is going to win re-election by focusing on sodomy because they'll just be known for sodomy if they focus. So they just stay on the books because nobody wants to be attached to them. Mm-hmm. Every small element in society, every rule that like your kids have a problem with in high school, everything in the workplace where you're like, well, you know, why is it a law that you, you know, you can't date someone in the workplace that's at the same level as you, because I'm working 80 hours a week. Where else am I supposed to meet somebody? Now, it's not necessarily that you're right by questioning that. No, you mm-hmm. can be right by questioning it, even though there's a good reason that the rules in place, power dynamics, because one of the two of you might end up getting promoted. And now there's a power imbalance between the two of you. That's it. This will go down the line of questioning for asking that. But once you focus on individual people, mm-hmm. then you move away from experts and move to the origin of an idea existing in your ecosystem that you're focused on. I see. I absolutely love that because I think many times we forget or we don't know what to do next. I think your whole work, at least in this book, it's not about questioning for the sake of questioning. It's really about questioning in the service of expanding our knowledge, expanding our decision making. So I absolutely love that. Um, We're running out of time and I want to be respectful with your time. So I have one last question. If you were to have a cup of coffee or tea or a beer or a scotch with any person you want today, who will that be and why? So they have to be alive. It can be either way, someone who has passed away or is alive, but anyone that you're curious to have a chat with today. Um, all right, I'm going to I'm gonna go dead. Um, not, okay. that, not, okay. that I, not that I despise everyone that's alive on planet Earth right now. Um, <laughs> all good. <laughs> But um, you know, one what you know, one of the people that I really respect the most is Richard Feynman, who was a mm. Nobel Prize winning physicist, and he was actually when it had the the NASA um, space shuttle explosion in 1984, they brought him in as the the non expert of space exploration to kind of oh, figure wow. out. They just knew he was a good problem solver, and he was of all of all the engineers. Of all of everyone that was involved in space exploration, he was the only person that figured out why why you actually had the the space shuttle explosion in 1984. And I just and on his free time, besides being a physicist and a professor, um, he ended up being like really obsessed with um, with lock picking. He just loved the problem solving in terms of like, hey, listen, humans created locks so every lock can be broken. And so he spent all this time just kind of just constantly like constantly trying to improve like his ability to kind of solve problems, fix things, see things from different angles. And I just have always loved trying to discern like how he ended up with the mind that he had. And, and uh, I'd love to be hanging out with him because he also was like, listen, he played the Congo drums. Wow. So he was always on stage when they had like a musical performances, asked to play the drums and that level of balance in his life um, mm-hmm. was something that kind of like I always want to kind of learn from people that are able to kind of um, keep sufficient level of fulfillment in, in multiple life domain bins in their lives and to me he's one of those people that did it quite well he seems like a super cool guy so I think it will be a juicy conversation if you have a cup of tea or a scotch with him for sure <laughs> yeah. 
Todd, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to chat with you and to learn more about your work. And for people listening to us, I am going to post on that website all the links to your books, Curious and the Art of Insubordination. And where can people find you? Where do you hang out these days in social media? Um, yeah, I've got a, I'm on Twitter, so Todd Cashin, and that's my Instagram handle, and that's my LinkedIn handle. So there's only one Todd Cashin out there. In the whole world. That's right. Only you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!